You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year, a comedy podcast looking back at this week in history. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, Podbean, iHeartRadio, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. If you want to follow us on social medias or message us with some suggestions for worst ever segments, you can do that over on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's had people walk out on him before, but not when he was being so charming. It's Mr. <laughs> Jeff McLeod Huge. <laughs> yes. Um, that's a quote that I'm not familiar with, uh, rarely enough. You should enough. be. You should be. That's from, that's from Blade Runner. Is it really? I specifically oh, looked that up for you, because I know you love Blade Runner. That must be from the voiceover. Which I like, but I haven't watched that version of it. Actually, in a long D- time. Deckard said it. Yeah. Okay. But it wasn't voiceover from Deckard. I think it was. I don't know. I'm just looking at the quotes in front of me. I've, I, I saw that movie once, and I literally don't remember anything about it except for what we'll talk about later in the worst movie ever segment. But no, I don't remember enough. But I know you like it. But anyway, yeah, that's why I chose enough. it. What's going on? How are you? <laughs> Oh, good. Well, speaking of old movies that haven't been seen for a while, uh, yes. over the course of 2023, John Carpenter's sort of really successful films in the early 1980s are hitting their milestone years of 40 years, 35 years, etc. I've already gone yeah. this year to see The Thing in the cinema. Very recently, I took my son and we went to see the 35-year anniversary of They Live, which uh-huh. was a lot of fun. I now, what seen... cinema does this? Is that near you, or are you going to Boston to do that? No, it was. it's right near me. Like, all of the AMC cinemas and stuff do it through... It's not Adam Tickets, but it's like Adam Tickets It's or Fandango or something. It's this uh, Fathom Events. That's what it is. It's Fathom Events that does them. Oh, I've they... heard of that. We have an AMC over here in Dartmouth, but I don't know if they do cool stuff. If you like, if you look up Fathom Events, it'll show you what's coming, and then you can see find out where, if anything, is playing that's near you. Okay. I was fortunate enough that They Live was playing just about 10 miles south of me in Salem, New Hampshire. And oh. uh, it was a ton of fun. I haven't seen that movie since it came out 35 years ago. That's semi-interesting. My friend Bob does like movie nights at his house, you know, quite often. And even as a projector like I have, he doesn't do it in his house. He does it outside, projects it onto his garage oh, okay. wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah, seen a lot of movies and that. stuff yep. like that. Yeah. So, yeah, we watched They Live, uh, I'm going to say about two years ago. So my experience with it was we were talking it up to the you know friends that were over that had never seen it. Oh, this movie's awesome. This movie's awesome. This movie's awesome. And then when we were all done with it, we kind of all agreed that the parts of the movie that we remembered as being awesome were kind of the only parts of the movie that were good. I suppose you could make that argument, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, everybody that's seen it is going to quote the I'm here to kick ass and chew bubblegum line. Right. Uh, whatever he, you know, puts the glasses on and he says to the woman in the bank, it's like putting perfume on a pig. Right. The, yeah, the eight-minute fight scene with him and Keith David. And basically everything about that movie that you can remember, 
are the good parts. And then there's a lot of dragon filler in that movie. Yeah, I didn't have that experience when I was at the cinema seeing it this time. I, I could appreciate there's a lot of nuance that's sort of built into the storytelling that I, I didn't remember it very well from when I first saw it, but it came, it sort of came flooding back when I was seeing it this time. Like the guy who's in the homeless encampment that's watching TV when everybody's getting sort of blasted with the ray that gives him a headache. You know, the transmission yeah. that's telling people, like, there, there's something going on. You've got to wake up. And he's the guy that ends up selling out and giving them the tour inside of the facility at the end. And I forgot that that was a part of the thing. And the way that the, the woman who is the, the programmer that Roddy Piper ends up sort of hooked with for a little while is has right. a really strange conversation with him when she brings him to her apartment. And it was just, there was a lot of it that I was like, oh, I forgot how good some of this dialogue was. And... And how tense it was. I, the other takeaway that I have from yeah. the film that I didn't expect is that I was continuously reminded for the entire runtime of the film that Roddy Piper is the most Canadian man in the history of the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like a misnomer. He is of Scottish heritage. Right. But yeah, he's about as Scottish as you and I, yeah. Yes. Everything he said sounded like a Bob and Doug McKenzie sketch. It was His, <laughs> accent, his Canadian accent was so thick. It was so thick, it was comical. It's like watching Rush interviews, yeah. Yeah. It didn't impact the quality of the film or anything for me, but I kept j chuckling whenever he said anything that was really like emotive, because it would always sound like it had come from uh, an SCTV sketch. Oh, yeah, that was so funny. Whenever I was in Montreal at those concerts, there were some people that had driven in over from Toronto, and we're talking to this one guy. You know, if you have a very strong accent from, you know, any particular area, it stands out. And this guy from Toronto's accent was so strong, it sounded like somebody was doing a bad Toronto accent impersonation. <laughs> and I can only imagine that somebody worked with Roddy Piper to, like, try and tamp it down and make it less <laughs> pronounced, you know? Right. Uh, it was. It wasn't quite needing subtitles to make sure you knew what he was saying, but it was close. It's like, um, I think it's Mark Wahlberg in the movie Ted. Yep. He doesn't stifle his accent, you know, because right. he's supposed to be a local, and he's talking with such a Boston accent. It sounds like somebody doing a bad imitation of a Boston right. accent. But no, and that's, that's just, how we talk. That's just him. Yeah, that's just how he talks. <laughs> yep. Take them from somebody who grew up in Massachusetts. That's what we sound like. Yeah. All right. Before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh, nobody here by that name. In the lower uh, section of Manhattan was a legendary punk rock club called CBGB's. Yep. It was CBGB's, and underneath it, it said, Umfug. The Ramones got their start there. A lot of people got their start there. It was a legendary club. Unfortunately, it's closed now, and they sell like clothes or something like that. But CBGB's Umfug, Jeff. What yep. does CBGB and Umfug stand for? <laughs> well, I will tell you about that at the end of the show. I bet you will. Or I'll bet you'll try. But this is the week beginning November the 13th, and it is your turn to start. We're going to start uh, this show on November the 13th with a celebrity birthday, Bill. We are starting okay. with... Uh, November the 13th, 1955, American actress and comedian and, I guess, talk show pundit, Whoopi Goldberg is unleashed upon the world to not only 
do stand-up comedy and character-based stand-up comedy, but get into all kinds of prestige movies and comedies and all kinds of stuff. I remember when she first started, she had a HBO special. I don't remember the name of it, but... It was like stand-up comedy, but it was more like a one-woman show. Yes. And it was broken up into like three 20-minute segments. Yes. Of these three characters. And I remember one of them was like a little kid. Yep. And one was a little kid. One was an, uh, a Jamaican lady who had married an old man. And one yep. was like a former recovering burnout. Right. Yes. And she did like kind of different voices. And it was... Yep. It was very interesting stand-up. It was a very unique approach to stand-up, right? I, I always thought that, that that special was really was really good. Yeah. Really good. And it's funny that you say prestige pictures because she also did a lot of junk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, she did like 300 Rex. But she was in the color purple, which yep. is a prestige picture for sure. She was in Jumping Jack Flash, which, yeah, which was, was not. Okay. <laughs> now, nah, you know, that movie was pretty good, though. I saw that one a couple of times in the cinema when it was out there. It was yeah, when you get into not it was when you get into no not prestige it was an okay action comedy right you know the only thing I really remember about that is that she's trying to write down the lyrics to the song Jumping Jack Flash and then she's screaming at the radio going Mick Jagger speak English you duck <laughs> yeah that was pretty funny she's trying to figure the lyrics out to talk to Jonathan Price's computer thing yeah. that was where I realized people weren't actually typing when they were typing in movies was watching right. her just run her fingers over the keyboard and then the text would show up in that amber uh, monochrome amber monitor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not a great film, but like some of the other stuff that she was in was okay. Fatal Beauty was not one of those things. Neither was Theodore <laughs> Rex. She took roles and made money and, and, and in between all of these things, she also f- took a role, a recurring role on Star Trek The Next Generation as Guinan, the, huh? the woman who was the proprietor of the 10 Forward Lounge inside the Enterprise. And had, yeah, I thought that was very interesting because she was like a big movie star at that time. And then she's over there doing like Star Trek, which was not held in as high regard as it is now. Right. You know, it, it wasn't laughed at. It wasn't like cop rock or nothing like that. Right, right. But it, I mean, it's certainly more well regarded now than it was at, at its time. I thought it was interesting that she was doing that series. She must really be a, you know, a Lucille Ball level Star Trek fan. <laughs> well, I don't know if she's a Lucille Ball level Star Trek fan, but she started on that show right as she was doing like the color purple. So uh-huh. even if the show wasn't super well regarded before, her presence there sort of bumped it up a little bit because it was sure. able to attract prestige actresses who didn't hide behind like Klingon makeup or weren't, you know, sort of third banana action movie character mm-hmm. actors. And that was something that sort of grounded the storytelling and character set really well. Now she's on The View, and we don't discuss politics on this show. They definitely discuss politics on that show. (laughs) Agree with her or not, you have to admire how bulldogish she is. She does not budge. And whether you agree with her politics or not, I will admire the fact that that she bulldogs like that. I, she'll, for, she'll always be guided to me. <laughs> she'll always be the little kid wearing pants on his head to make believe that, he, that she has long, luxurious hair. <laughs> hey. All right. November the 14th, 1990, Simon & Schuster Publications announced that it had dropped its plans to publish the Brett Easton Ellis novel, American Psycho. Nice. Yeah. 
I mean, everybody knows. Everybody knows it's uh, it did its run in the theaters and then it did its run in home video. The movie American Psycho. It's about twenty three, right. about twenty three years old now. That movie. I saw it first run in the in the theater. I was down in Florida. It was raining. We couldn't yep. go to the theme parks that day, so I went to see American Psycho in the theater. Huh. I uh, I saw it in the cinema too. Yeah. The book though is slightly different, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes, uh, it is. why why do you think Simon and Schuster were gonna drop their plans to publish this book? Oh, I'm sure it had absolutely nothing to do with the viscerally described scenes of violence against women that are in this book. I'm yeah. sure that had nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Here's here's my history with it. I really liked the punk band The Misfits, and they had gotten back together with a new singer in the 90s, and they had put out a new album, and the lead track was American Psycho, and it's about the book. Right. And I don't remember what movie I'd gone to see. I think it was Hostel. But anyway, they were running trailers, and they were showing that there was a movie version of American Psycho coming out. So I liked the song. I wanted to see the movie. I was like, I'm going to go buy the book. And I didn't know about the controversy. I just right. just knew it was a book. That's all. So I went out and I bought the book and I read it. And I don't think I have said the phrase "ay ay ay" as much <laughs> before or since reading that book. My experience with that book is reverse order. I read the book before the film came out, but I read it knowing that the film would be re- the film came out in like what ninety nine. I think two thousand or two thousand. Okay, so. Ultimately, the book was published by a company called Vantage in 1991 because Simon Schuster dropped it. But I read it in probably 95 or 96 because I had already moved here to New Hampshire yep. and borrowed it from the library, which no doubt put me on a list somewhere. <laughs> and as I was reading it, one, I appreciated the way that Brett Easton Ellis builds detail into the most mundane things. The first like 50 pages of this book is just hygiene, like his yes. hygiene and workout. And I was like, what is this? Right. And then it, it gets it goes right into like super weird detailed like insanity and stays there. And it's the only book where I've ever been reading something and being like, wow, this is pretty hot. This could be like porn. And then the next page I'm like, Oh my god, geez, go and then I have to go yeah. take a shower. Yeah, there's so many things in this book that I don't feel comfortable talking about it on the podcast. Right. And there's a lot of stuff that they left out of the movie just simply because they couldn't yeah. put that in a movie. And the movie I, almost got a, rate, a rating X anyway. Right. Um, and that's just way, because of the material because the movie was super tame. Like the way he tortures his victims and the detail that uh, Brett Easton Ellis, the amount of detail that he describes, you can almost too perfectly visualize it in your head what's going on it's <laughs> yeah it's, it's tough it's grim yeah, yeah it's, it's tough. tough it's a tough book uh, one of my book. favorite scenes in the book that I can, that I can talk about is he goes on a date with I believe in the book it ends up being the girl that he says it's his cousin but it's not his cousin um, he goes on a date with her and he had stolen a puck from a urinal and covered it in chocolate and brought it to her and served it to her and she's over there eating it and she's trying to get through it and she's just like wincing because of the you know the very strong peppermint yeah. <laughs> taste to it. I remember laughing a lot at that. The scene that I like the best in the book that I can talk about is when Patrick goes to see his mother 
and he's looking at all the pictures on the mantle of his family all the yep. way back to like two generations and he realizes that in all of the pictures in everybody's eyes like he can see that everybody's like got crazy eyes in the in the pictures <laughs> and he's he's talking to his mother about like the thoughts that he's having and all those and she goes oh you're just like all the batemans all the batemans are a little bit crazy and like <laughs> that one line like but she delivers it in dead seriousness and right. then transitions into something else and it doesn't matter because they have a ton of money like they're crazy but nobody bothers with them because they're rich you know and i always thought that scene was a masterpiece of character development yeah what i really liked about the book is that it's all narrated in first person present yes so it's not patrick bateman walked down to the store it's right. i'm walking to the store right and the entire book is like that except for one and a half pages where it switches the narrative into a third person so and that scene's in the movie too you know whenever he's like running away from the cops yeah and he like shoots a cop car and then he ends up in his uh apartment building calling his lawyer that yep. whole scene in the book is narrated from a third person perspective right he like has an out of body body experience, experience yeah which i thought was really cool a, a cool narrative a cool way to narrate it it was a definitely good narrative flourish i i love that i love the fact that the characters ultimately was about interchangeability and anyway it's a great read um if yep. you can tolerate the amount of violence in it and this is for our, our listening audience yeah. If you can tolerate the amount of violence in it, it is an astonishingly good read. And so are the other books that Brett Easton Ellis has written. So, All right, moving on to November the 15th. November the 15th, 1986. The Beastie Boys, from Brooklyn, New York, released their debut album, License to Ill. It's the very first hip-hop album, a rap album, to go number one on the Billboard charts. Primarily on the strength of their debut single, Fight for your right to party. I have gone on record several hundred thousand times. Uh, I am not a Beastie Boys fan. I don't like them. I don't like mm -hmm. them. I don't. I just don't. They like to the point where I'm like beat, beat face red hatred. Yeah. Um, but you know, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk here. I will acknowledge their place in musical history. Yeah. I do like their punk rock stuff they put out right. an album of stuff that they did before they got signed to a major label yep and uh with their punk stuff and even on the album check your head there was one or two punk tracks on there one in particular called mullet head that i like right i like them as a punk band i don't like them as this rap parody stuff i don't know that it's rap parody as much but it was definitely a novelty record and that that scored because MTV played it like literally every five minutes for five months, um, right? To the point where, like, I, I, if I never hear "Fight for Your Right to Party" again, I still hear it's still too much. From like, what I, I understand, they've never played that song live in concert. I don't, I don't blame them. <laughs> you know? Yes. And the the trick that is about that song is they were making fun. Of frat boys, that yeah. song is like making fun of the people that love that song. Yes, and it's very and, meta. Yeah, and yes, and the irony of that is literally lost on the audience that remembers that song. Is like this is an anthem for when I go to a keg party. It's like yeah. you're missing the point. 
I'm pretty sure this was the first record from Def Jam Records that won number one, too, on any chart. I think it might have been one of Def Jam's first re uh, records. It may I very well have was, been. I think this was Rick Rubin. There it is. I said it. I yep. think this was Rick Rubin's first album that he put out on his record label. Yeah. He's all over the video. If you want to go back and watch the video now, he's like Weird Al Yankovic in a Hanson video. He's there. He's all over the place. Right. He's in, the, sleep, uh, he's in the No Sleep Till Brooklyn video as well. Yeah. Uh, yep. It paved the way to make more interesting records as they as the Beastie Boys went on. I particularly have a favorite in Paul's Boutique. That was a record I started to play a lot when I worked at WKKL uh, on the Cape and the radio station and found real love for some tracks on that record. You know what's super funny is like my friend Richard like used to stand by that album, you know, and one of his like selling points was musically he goes, oh, that's all the Dust Brothers. I was like, oh, cool. Who the f*** are the Dust Brothers? That, means <laughs> that, that sentence literally means nothing to me. Yeah, they're like techno I, producers. Okay. But, yeah, I, like I said, I don't like the Beastie Boys. If I was going to ask you, do you have a favorite track on this album, don't bother asking me. Just don't. I don't have a favorite track on License to Hill. My favorite track song. on License to Hill is, is any track on Paul's Boutique. <laughs> I'll tell you what song I hate more than any other song on it. How's that? Girls. Um, okay. Oh, I, my yeah, God. That, that song, is, that song makes me twitch. Yeah. It's, it's suboptimal. But... Again, it paved the way for better records, and it's it's softened up the psyche of the American music listener to to rap, good or bad or whatever. But it may have sped along a little bit the acceptance of that art form in popular culture. I think it's before a Run DMC and Aerosmith, right? Which was the other big number uh, one. I think so, like a year later, yeah. Yeah. All right, November the 16th, 2008. The video game Mortal Kombat vs. DC Universe is released for the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360 simultaneously. Oh. You like what? games like that? You like fighting games like that? Yeah, I, uh, can, I, I have fun with fighting games depending on who the characters are and, yeah. and stuff. This is one I actually I, I have and I, and I bought. I didn't buy my PlayStation to play it, but it was the first game that I ever played on a PlayStation 3 because my brother had it. And it was the uh -huh. first game that I bought for the PlayStation 3 when we bought our PlayStation, our PlayStation oh, wow. 3. Uh, it's one okay. of the very few that I've played all the way through both campaigns and finished. And it, it helped to sort of reignite my, my love for Captain Marvel. Oh, wow. No kidding. Yep. Captain Marvel, colloquially known as Shazam. Shazam, yes. The world. Yep. So, all right. Here's a question for you. Sure. Are you a Street Fighter or a Mortal Kombat? I am way more of a Street Fighter guy. I like the cartoony aspect of it uh -huh. uh, a lot more because the movesets can be more interesting. And I always found Mortal Kombat seemed, at least as far as the stand-up games go, yeah, it always seemed a little gimmicky, whereas the creative art design in the Street Fighter games was more interesting. Fair. Um, I think I played the Mortal Kombat games more than I played the Street Fighter. Mm -hmm. Like, I definitely remember Mortal Kombat, the first one in the arcade, and Mortal Kombat 2 and 3. And I had... I didn't have this one, and I didn't have Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe, but I did play one of its sequels, like Injustice or something yeah, like that. Yes. I have the sequel. I bought it. I played it exactly three times, and I have not played it since. Oh, I, I got it as like a free download with like a monthly game thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's fine. I like those fighting games. It's just 
I always want to fight and make them look pretty. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to use the special moves. I want to do this, that, and the other. And then the person I would play these fighting games against was the guy that lived next door to me when I lived in my apartment. And all he would do with every single character would just, like, kick you in the knee until <laughs> you fall over and die. And I'm like, dude, you're supposed to f***ing do the move and do this and do that. He goes, I'm winning, ain't I? I was like, yeah, yeah but you're not having fun. He goes, I'm having plenty of fun. I'm winning. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> it sounds like you were playing with both of my brothers when I was a kid. Yeah, I played, well, I guess, Mortal Kombat 2 when I was in college. The last semester that I was in college, my upstairs neighbor had uh, Sega Genesis. And I probably played that enough. I put enough credit hours into that game to minor in it. So I have a, a degree in European history and uh, English literature and a minor in Mortal Kombat 2 for the Sega Genesis. <laughs> All right, moving on to November the 17th. November the 17th, 1944. We have another celebrity birthday, Bill. Go on. It is uh, our friend, Lauren Michaels, producer of Saturday Night Live and a slew of Saturday Night Live based movies of which yeah. you can argue there's a good one somewhere in there yeah you can count the amount of really good saturday night live movies on one hand and have fingers left over to to count the cast members on the other hand yeah yeah yes you know obviously the blues brothers movie the first one anyway and the wayne's world movies i don't know i think i'd be really hard pressed to make an argument for any other saturday night live movie that was good uh, uh, Wayne's World. I would if I had to like legit pick good Saturday Night Live movies based on skits. Like there's some that are adjacent, right? Yeah. But I would have to say the, Wayne's World, um, Stewart Saves His Family, and that's about it. Yeah, the the Stewart and like the Stewart Smalley Saves His Family. That's really adjacent. That was just like. Because Al Franken was a writer for Saturday Night Live, and that was like one of his characters that he would do on the news. No, it wasn't the news. They did the the whole Stuart Smalley sketch was they did oh, like that's thirty right, that's of them. Right. You know, he's a caring nurturer. He's a veteran of several twelve step programs, but not an actual <laughs> licensed therapist. And he had his own like talk show, and every talk show went horribly wrong. Right, it was, that's it was so. Funny. That's when Macaulay Culkin was on with the famous, and you know what chicken butt uh, sequence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And my favorite is the one where Michael Jordan is his guest. Yep. And he doesn't know, like, the joke is he doesn't know who Michael Jordan is. I remember seeing that <laughs> one, like, that's right. You're, you're so, well, you don't have to bounce the ball so well. You can, it's okay if you don't <laughs> make every shot. It was, it, was, it was wicked funny. But I, I really like the movie. The movie's probably the best written of all the Saturday Night Live films. And it's the one that's the least funny. Which is right. hard to imagine that it's also still good because so many of their films are not good and also not funny. Yeah, I remember watching it and like not really enjoying it because it wasn't very it wasn't very funny. Right. Uh, so getting back to Lauren Michaels, he's been at the helm of Saturday Night Live pretty much continuously since 1975, except for like one season, maybe two. Yeah. Well, that was one season when Dick Ebersol was the producer, and it was the worst season of Saturday Night Live in the history of the show. Right. And I think it's really funny with Saturday Night Live that everybody thinks. It sucks now. And I don't mean it sucks now in 2023. I mean it sucks now that I'm not a teenager. Right. You know, because, like, everybody wants... That's like a rite of passage. You watch Saturday Night Live as a teenager or as a young person because you're up, you know? Right. And and then you watch it as an adult and you just seem to think that the cast that was on when you were a kid was so much better. 
And I think I think that's probably because for years and years and years that show was event television. It was yes. on once a week. They didn't do reruns much. And it was always going to be something new, and you never knew what it was going to be. And it was you always started. It was always the latest thing on Saturday Night Live when you came home from whatever you were doing, or if you were like under thirteen, you sort of snuck out of your bedroom to watch it on TV. And it was really transgressive and fun. But it was appointment TV. You made a point to get up and go watch it. Right. Less so now. <laughs> you know what was uh, what? What I'm getting at is. I was over my friend's house. Is one of the rare friends that I have that's older than I am. He was saying that Saturday Night Live sucks now. Right. And I was like, hold on. And I showed him a sketch. And I don't remember what sketch it was, but it was from a fairly recent cast. And he's like sitting there laughing his ass off, like watery eyes, giggling his ass off, watching this sketch. And at the same time, Telling me how Saturday Night Live sucks now. I was like, right. you're laughing your ass off and telling me it sucks? How do you do that? I don't know. I know that recently you're the one who sent me the sketch with the uh, the Waffle House in the background. And it's like, yes, no. that sketch was really funny. There's some really clever stuff that, that makes its way into that show still. I don't watch yeah. it very often, but I do watch the clips. Oh, yeah. So. I'm, a, I'm a YouTube watcher myself. I only watch the clips whenever I'm on break. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving on. November the 18th. 1902, Jeff. 1902? Yeah, it's a oh, long time boy. ago. It is. Uh, uh, but, but, 102 but, uh, years uh, ago. Yeah, but uh, 120, 122 years ago. 121 years ago. 121 years ago. I'm not a math guy, <laughs> as you all can tell. A good trivia <laughs> question me. for me would be like, how much is 4 plus 6? So anyway, uh, 121 years ago, a Brooklyn toy maker, Morris Mitchin, Names the teddy bear after U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. Ah, and that name stuck. Yeah, so stuffed animals and, and stuffed bears in general had been around, you know, forever. Oh, years, or yeah. At least pretty much forever. Mm -hmm. The stuffed bear, he named it the teddy bear after the president, Teddy Roosevelt. And yeah, that's all we call it. I mean, I think... The legend of that it's named after the president is kind of lost to history a little bit. I don't know if it's lost to history. Well, it's kind of a weak trivia question, but I'm... It tends to be a thing that you learn when you're an adult, though, and you're like, oh, I have one of those. Right. For years yeah. and years, it's like, well, you know, it's named after Teddy Roosevelt. And you're like, no, I had no idea. Wow, that's pretty right. cool. I had a and rabbit, And since though. we've been adults <laughs> for a very long time, it seems like a weak trivia question. Right, right. But I'm, I'm pretty sure you could, you know, surprise a... Uh, a teenager with that, or a early twenty person, you know. You'd have to just, you'd have to identify who like Theodore Roosevelt was. Like, do you know who Theodore Roosevelt? Was? Yeah, the, the guy on Mount Rushmore that's not on money, and they're like, "What's money?" And they're like, "All right, listen." He's the guy who ran up San Juan Hill. I don't know who that is. All right, man, this is gonna be, this is gonna be. Sit down. I'm gonna get some he's, books out. He's the president you don't want to get into a fist fight with. He he was a bad mother. That's who President uh, Roosevelt right. was. So anyway, getting back to the teddy bear itself. Recently, I had just gone to, not a Comic-Con, but it was like a Comic-Con, but it's more geared towards horror because me, you know? Yeah. And there was this old woman there, and her name was June, and she was there with her son. And her son was like almost 60. She was like 84 years old, and she's walking around with a walker. And she had like a bunch of posters of like horror movie stuff, like particularly Nightmare on Elm Street, and she was getting them autographed. She was nice. so cool. And she had this old teddy bear with her, right? 
And the clothes looked pretty new, but the teddy bear itself, you could tell, was kind of old. Yeah. And she says to me, she was like, do you know how old this teddy bear is? I'm like, well, the clothes look new, but I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess 50s. And she goes, 1941. And I was born in 1939. Yeah, so this woman was like 84 years old, and she's had this teddy bear basically her whole life. Jeez, it's like Mr. Burns and Bobo. Yeah, kind of. Or me with Mugwump, my stuffed... Uh, <laughs> with Mugwump. My stuffed yeah. mallard, yeah. And then uh, my ex-girlfriend there, Alexandra, she had a stuffed duck called Ducky that she... As far as I know, I haven't talked to her in a long time, but as far as I know, she's the last Ducky. And she got Ducky when she was like three years old. No, no. Well, I'm, three I'm, months old. In one of my closets here is the Winnie the Pooh that I had from when I was born. So I still have mine oh, really? somewhere. Yeah. Yep. I still have mine here somewhere. Well, another uh, another 30 years or so, you could bring that to Comic-Cons. I could. And I'd be yep. like, it's a teddy bear. And they go, who? That's <laughs> a poo bear. It's a poo bear. And I go, oh, I don't want to touch that. It's not that kind of poo. <laughs> Ew. All right. Let's wrap up the week. All right. November 19th, 2017. The very first object to be verified to come from outside of our solar system travels through our solar system and its name as hard to pronounce as it is is omao mao <laughs> i think yeah. they wrote a song about that yeah it was a uh, surfer bird bow, 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 ooh, mow, mow, mow. <laughs> yeah, exactly it was uh, maybe they had surfer bird on the, the the scope or whatever the radio telescope when they were listening when they were spotted the trash yeah, the trash men were working for nasa yeah right it was 400 meters long it still is 400 meters long because there's, there's no was it's still in the solar system and it's yeah. sort of reddish brown and it seems to move in a way that suggests that it's not bound by planetary gravity the way that you predict it would be how's that for tiptoeing around the potential that it may be piloted or it may be made by some being and sent here as a probe or what other thing and if or it may be a surfer bird jeff it may very well be surfing its way through the galaxy like the silver surfer or i think it's a bird yes exactly <laughs> it's the the herald for galactus the chicken it's space nobody can hear you <laughs> <laughs> Depending on where you go on the internet or YouTube or wherever, you will find explanations for the Umau Mau that range from it's a rock all the way to the Earth is going to be invaded by space monsters with ample proof providing to each side of the spectrum and everything in between. If you really want to lose a couple of hours, that's a sort of fun way to do it because the depth of insanity with regard to this object is vast and murky. Yeah, a couple of months ago... There was that dude that was like the whistleblower that was saying we have <laughs> alien technology and all. And, yes. you know, there was going to be like the hearing. And there was. There was like a hearing in, yep. I don't know if it was Congress or wherever yeah, it, was, it was. Yeah, it was in front of, it was in front of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. It was televised and all that. But then it came out that this guy has been like an alcoholic for a large section of his life. And not just like a casual alcoholic. Like yeah. the kind you go away for. Right. And yeah, and he had a lot of like... You know, emotional and mental issues that he had to be, you know, go away for a little bit for. Mm -hmm. So I'm not entirely sure how credible some of his claims are going to be. Right. Uh, that all being said, it reminded me, though, of that scene from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they built the computer 
to say, you know, what the ultimate answer to like the universe and everything was. Right. And the philosophers showed up and says, turn the computer off. You can't give everybody the definitive answer. Right. That's our job to speculate. Right. And, you know, there's the whole is there or isn't there about alien life forms is a, you know, a discussion we've been having since Ezekiel saw the wheel in the in the Bible, you know. There is no definitive answer. It's just, it's fun to speculate. If there was a definitive answer, you're ruining a whole cottage industry of science fiction. <laughs> They're putting you out of business, Jeff. Yeah, it's, well, I, you know what? Business hasn't been very good anyway. Uh, but <laughs> I like to think that it, if something was going to be piloted into our solar system, it probably wouldn't be a giant rock. Just, you know, for my own A redhead. A, a big red rock, rock, yeah. A big red-headed rock. So. Hey, red rock. That's where you two recorded their uh, That's right. Their live album there, right. All right, before we get into our worst song ever, we have our weird-ass holiday for the week. Uh, Jeff, November the 14th, so Tuesday this week, is National Pickle Day. How do you want pickles, pickle Day. Jeff? Yep. I love pickles. I love to make them, and I love to eat them. The two best things about pickles. Growing up, I was a Gherkins Sweet gherkins. That was my favorite part about Thanksgiving. Yeah. Like, you know, my mom would give me a Thanksgiving dinner and she'd put like two sweet gherkins on the plate. And I'm looking at her like, you serious? Right. Uh, I, I didn't ask for a snack there, Adrian. <laughs> Load them up. You know, I wanted, I wanted all the gherkins. Those are my favorites. Right. Um, right, right. I didn't get I didn't really develop a palate for dill pickles until much later. Ah. Uh, I'm a I'm a dill guy, but I like sweet pickles too. I've never made sweet pickles because I guess it's a lot more complicated and requires boiling, which I I'm like, yeah, you know what? I don't need to ever learn how to do that. But I've oh. made a ton of brine pickles and fresh pickles and um, garlic pickles over the last few years. And yeah, I um I make pickles every fall, and I uh, I give them to my friends at the haunted house, which sounds like it's old news because it's November the thirteenth or whatever, mm-hmm. but. Uh, we're not recording in real time. So, yeah, I got a bunch of pickles. And um, I make both hot and regular. Yes. You know, reg- regular and unleaded, I guess you could say. Um, <laughs> yes. The, the hot ones, I stick a ghost pepper in there. Mm-hmm. And it adds just enough kick to the point where it's not inedible. Right. But it's got all the ghost pepper flavor in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the flavor, of, you the know flavor what of fire. Yeah. And you know what I did one time? You can try this your next uh, pickle adventure. Try adding yellow curry into the brine. Oh, okay. I will. Yeah. That added a, a nice flavor to it, too. I will do that. That sounds like a great idea. You know, there aren't a so, lot of songs about pickles, Bill. No, there are not a lot of songs about pickles. And if there were, I'm sure there would be... The worst song ever. Hey, Jeff, we got another request for a worst song ever. Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, you can send in your requests and suggestions for a worst song or worst movie ever. Um, Message us on Facebook or Instagram using TWWWBOY. So this week's worst song ever is a suggestion from a listener in Massachusetts named Sophia. Hello, Sophia. Thank you for your suggestion. Yep. And she was writing and telling us about a four-year relationship that she had gotten out of with some sanity uh, intact. And her partner's favorite song was Steal My Sunshine by Len. Can't become if you only say what you would have done. 
that that lasted four four years that would have lasted less than the length of this song if that was me but god love uh, you sophia those that's some patience you got there okay so now that i've listened to that clip all 30 or so seconds of it it's gonna take me a, a bloody week and a half to just wash that song out of my brain because it is a massive earworm and i think that's part of the reason that it, it's such a good choice for our worst song ever segment yeah that's such a weird thing it's like it's catchy and honestly, that's kind of like what you look for in a song, you right. know, the hooks. I remember my friend going on about the band Wilco. He goes, I can't find a single hook in the, this entire album, you know. And yeah. then you get this song, Len. Uh, I mean, this song, Steal My Sunshine by Len. Right. And yeah, it's more hooks than a tackle box. Right. Only problem is the song is horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has... It has a lot working against it. The things that it's are working against it is the incredibly breathy vocal track, which yeah, which is really annoying. And yeah, it's, he sings like it's the breath coming out of his mouth is louder than the vocal. Huh, huh. That was like a real popular singing style in the nineties. Like Jesus Jones sang like yeah, that. So did uh, Stone Roses. Uh, what was that band there? The Happy Mondays. They were another yep. one. Another one. Problem was, is those are all great songs. Uh, this is not. <laughs> this is not. And those songs were on the very beginning of the 1990s, and this song was not. This song no, sort this of bubbled up in the tail middle. end. Of, right. It bubbled up at apex of where American popular music was just sludgy, grungy, copycats of like Nirvana and Alice in Chains and stuff that had just flooded FM radio. Yeah, this had come out in like 1999. The 90s started and ended when they should have. You know, it yes. started in 91 and it ended in 99. It yes. ended on fire is what it happened. This band, Len, they're from Toronto, Canada, so they undoubtedly talk like Roddy Piper. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure they do. Yep, and it's made up of siblings, Mark Costanzo and his sister, Sharon Costanzo, and, you know, there's been a bunch of other people in and out of the band, but for the most part, it's those two. Right. The name Len is the pseudonym for Mark, you know, which is short for, like a, like a nickname for Leonard, right? And this got me laughing. This little story here has nothing to do with Len other than the names. So, do you remember a guy that we went to high school with? His name was Mark Laranja. Do you remember that name? Yeah, I do. Okay. So I haven't seen Mark. I think I've seen Mark once since we graduated. Last I heard, he was a Catholic priest. But okay. I went to grade school with Mark as well, right? And what had happened was, I think it was like fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And we had like a lunch lady come in. And she walked into class and she saw Mark. And she thought Mark was Mark's cousin, Lenny, right? So she yes. just sees him and she's like, Lenny! Like, she was super happy to see him. And he's like, I'm not Lenny, I'm Mark. That poor kid, his nickname was Lenny for the rest of our class together. Oh, from, like, funny. fourth grade 
through eighth grade. Nobody called him Mark. He was Lenny that whole time, right? So we get to high school. Now, listeners aren't going to know this, but you understand. When we went to high school, Jeff and I, we went to a vocational school. Yes. So we had 10 days of shop and then 10 days of class. And when the people were in shop, the re- the other half of the school was in class and never the twain shall meet. Right. So there's certain people that you went to high school with that you never saw. You never saw. saw. Yeah, unless you, yeah. unless you rode the bus with them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you and I were on opposite cycles for the first two years. Two years, yep. And, and then a lot of times in the last two years, they flip people around, and you were one of the people that got flipped. Yeah. Now, Mark had gotten flipped, right? So for the first two years of his high school existence, nobody called him Lenny. Nobody knew the story. Nobody knew <laughs> nothing. He was Mark, right? Yep. Day one of junior year, he goes walking into one of his new classrooms, and two people from his grade school are in the class. And uh, one of them goes, Lenny! Lenny and it, was, uh, it all started up all over again. He was Lenny for the rest of his high school existence. Oh, that's, that's two, rough. He had two years of peace, and it just, as far as I know, he's Father Lenny now. Oh, jeez. That is that is funny. I love that story. So, at any rate, this band, Len, it's kind of like almost every other story that we talk about here on Worst Song Ever. They were a one-hit wonder. Yep. They had humble beginnings, major record label, pump out their song, and then that was it. And then they no just, more songs. Yeah, they just kind of disappeared into obscurity. So, they kind of join like bands like, I guess Smash Mouth was around this time, too. And Blink-182, which were a little bit more up-tempo and happy than what you think of for popular music in the 1990s. But it did, right, none of it had yeah. any real staying power, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, well, Blink-82 goes into, like, that, you know, 90s punk. Yeah, they drop into the pop-punk thing, but, like, they're, like, all the all the small things or whatever that song was, was... Yeah, 90s punk, like 70s punk was like angry. 90s punk was whiny and complaining. Right. Now, as as happy as it sounded, they were all just like, I'm so bored. This song, there wasn't much else like this. There was a couple of songs here and there, and two of them are by Sheryl Crow, where it's just (laughs) like, I'm going to be happy. Right. Nobody's going to steal my sunshine, you know? And that's great, but there wasn't really that much like that going along going right. around in the 90s for me this song reminds me of something that i would hear like on a soundtrack this is absolutely totally soundtrack music and it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me if it was used in like a zillion advertisements or at the time what what the cw network like the home of the yep. teen dramedy where right there's a montage of people or the main character who's just had an argument with her significant other or vice versa. And this is on in the background as they're picking the pieces up of their life. And she's looking at the ornate scrapbook that she made of the person that she's now lo- no longer speaking with. And that person is sitting in their room looking out the window at a bird. And then somebody's like polishing a car or eating a hamburger. And that's all just with this song just suffused in the background until ultimately either the credits roll or they get back together and go to the next episode. Which is a very special episode. <laughs> Guest starring Mark from the band Len, who's like in an iron lung because... Right. Ah, ah, right. <laughs> Asthmatics of the world unite. And this also, much like another song that we covered on Worst Song Ever previously, Weedus. Was that the name? Weedus? Yes. With Teenage, teenage, teenage Dirtbag. Dirt yeah. yeah. Where it's kind of like a an all-you-can-eat buffet of musical tropes. 
So you got this like acoustic guitar, and then you get like some heavy guitar in there too. You got the breathy huh, vocals, and then you got like a, a hip hop or dancey beat. This drum beat isn't really so much hip hop as it is more like, you had made a reference to like more 70s disco. Oh, it is absolutely a disco beat. It's got like the same kind of disco drums that you'll hear in a Tavares song. Yeah. Boo! Without, without the boo! All right. So before we wrap up the show, I do have the answer to our always popular and very well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Uh, hey, Jeff. Speaking of punk rock. Yes. The legendary punk rock club in Lower Manhattan was known as CBGBs. Yes. CBGBs and Oomphug. Yes. What does so, that big pile of letters stand for, young so Jeff? So I know, I know CBGBs means country, bluegrass, and blues. And, oh, wow. Uh, Oomphug is like, oh, I can't remember the, all of it, but it's like other music for like underground people, like underground guys, girls, gorillas, <laughs> gorillas, something. I can't remember, but it's other music for something, something. All right, you're so close. I'll give you the. I'll give you like eighty five percent of a point. All right, okay? I'll take so, it. So, the Umfug stands for, and you'll like this because it's got a, uh, a Jeff McLarge word at the end of it. Ah. So CBGBs does in fact stand for country, bluegrass, and blues, and then Umfug stands for and other music for uplifting gourmandizers. Oh, that just rolled now, right off the tongue. Yeah. Now, a gourmandizer is something that, like, eats, like, a ravenous eater of food. Oh. Okay. But. Well, not a word I've bumped into too often. Yeah. The founder of the place, Hilly Crystal, whatever he said that, he didn't really mean it as food. Yeah. He meant it more as and an consuming eater. Consuming music. Like, yeah. Consuming the music. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. The umfug stands for other music for uplifting Gormandizers. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad I got 85% of that right. Yep. All right. But that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. A special thanks to James Costa for our theme song. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And remember, if everybody who listens to the show gets one more person to listen, we'll double our listenership. Mm.